Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Wayne Wu, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Carnegie Mellon University. His new book, Attention, is just out from Routledge as part of its New Problems in Philosophy series. The mental phenomenon of attention is often thought of metaphorically as a kind of spotlight. We focus our attention on a particular item or task. Our attention is divided or diffused when we try to text and drive at the same time. And our attention is captured when we suddenly hear our name pop out from the conversational hubbub of a noisy party. But what is attention? How seriously should we take this or other metaphors as giving us insight into the nature of attention? In his new book, who argues for the view that attention is selection for action and is distinct from consciousness? This controversial position pits him against more common views that attention is in some sense essentially connected to consciousness, that it is, for example, a kind of gatekeeper for consciousness. He draws on empirical literature from psychology and neuroscience to develop his view, while acknowledging how difficult it is to interpret results so as to support one theory or another. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Wayne, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Carrie. I'm very happy to be talking with you about your new book, Attention. Uh, it's a very interesting and I would should say hot topic, I think, today. Uh, and this is one of the first, I guess, um, full explorations, you know, just focused on the topic of attention. goes from empirical work and psychology neuroscience to various theories, you know, both from scientists and from philosophers. And you, you stake out a very, uh, a very, what I think would be controversial position, uh, where you defend a, what you call a selection for action account that distinguishes attention from, uh, from consciousness, or at least from phenomenal consciousness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's part of the the lay of the land that we will will discuss. Um, before we get to the book itself, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, how you got into philosophy, your interest in this particular topic, and then how you came to write the book. Yeah, sure. Um, so currently I'm an associate professor in the Center for the Neural Basis of Cognition at Carnegie Mellon University. 
And that's basically a cognitive science center that's joined with the University of Pittsburgh. And so we have faculty from computational neuroscience, statistics, computer science, robotics, machine learning, all the way down to people doing molecular neuroscience and everyone in between. And I'm a philosopher in that department. Um, but my background uh, was originally in biochemistry, where I did some graduate work. And I came to philosophy because I disliked being a scientist, hmm. disliked doing bench work. Um, but I really like the big questions, and I think that's really one of the advantages of doing philosophy is that you really get to tackle these questions. So there was kind of a meandering sort of route a couple of years, just kind of um, hanging out in Berkeley, teaching an occasional chemistry course while I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. It's not a bad place to do that. No. Uh, it's actually quite a good place to do A lot of people are doing that there. <laughs> Some people never stop. Right, exactly. Uh, um, but I found myself in some philosophy of science courses at Berkeley and then eventually did some graduate work in philosophy of science, moved to philosophy of mind, uh, and that's where I ended up in terms of what I work on. And uh, I went back to Berkeley to work with John Searle, um, who's probably familiar to many of your listeners, and also Jay Wallace, and worked on agency. And it was through agency, reading some of the uh, articles by... Uh, Alan Alport, Ogmar Neumann, who are psychologists, and John Campbell, uh, that really led me to attention. So I think it's kind of fortuitous. It's probably true for many of us. Um, kind of like, you know, I just happened to read something and that got me thinking about attention. And in the end, I decided or, you know, felt like I could argue that attention and agency, action, are really importantly linked. So that's how I came to the topic and ended up writing a dissertation. Okay, so uh, you mentioned Alan Allport, who who plays a a role throughout the book, because he um, he defended a similar view, from what I understand. Yeah. Um, to give the listeners a sort of a lay of the land of the book, as I as I sort of indicated before, in the beginning you lay out certain questions that an adequate theory of attention should answer. So that's a pretty standard philosophical. Uh, move is to say, well, you know, this is what a good theory ought to do for us. Um, and you divide, uh, you divide the existing field into roughly three basic groups of different sorts of theories, which you call functional theories, mechanistic theories, and then those that are more phenomenologically centered. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could explain to us what the basic, you know, adequacy conditions that you see, what the problems that a theory of attention needs to answer. Yeah, so um, I think that division is a, a nice way to at least approach it initially. So, um, and here I'm influenced a little bit by the vision scientist David Marr, and he has a very famous approach to explanation. I think um, that's sort of the inspiration for my dividing the questions this way in part. So the functional question for me uh, is really to ask what is attention for, what, um, what processes or goals does it serve, and that actually, I mean, I would argue, um, but that's you know, because I have a bias, I'd argue that that's really the primary question, and the Marian influence is that that was in a way, I mean, one could argue this, but that that was a way his starting point for thinking about vision, so I, I think that's primary, but... Um, a lot of people in cognitive science work on the mechanistic aspects of it, where you know mechanisms can be computational models all the way down to you know, the nature of the circuit, or even below that. 
Um, there, I think, trying to understand the way the brain implements attention really implicitly always uh, involves a kind of functional conception in the background. So in terms of those two questions, I do think, and this is also kind of Marian influence, um, the functional question has a kind of priority, even if, let's say, a neuroscientist of attention doesn't necessarily see it that way, right? They might see themselves as working on the basic mechanics, neural mechanics of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for people who aren't scientists or philosophers coming to attention, I think it's the phenomenological conception that probably is the most intuitive. And it's captured in a whole set of metaphors that are rampant still in um, psychology and neuroscience. This idea of attention in the visual case, for example, as a spotlight. Sometimes people talk about it as a zoom lens. John Campbell has this nice metaphor of it highlighting um, the visual scene. And if you think about attention that way, um, you know, you can sort of see it in your own sort of daily experience. Um, and so you might then approach it theoretically uh, in trying to capture what, what it's like to attend to something and come to sort of look at attention as essentially a kind of mode of consciousness. So I think those are three kind of very broad approaches uh, to attention that you can find in different aspects of the theoretical literature. Okay. Um, you mentioned visual attention, and a lot of the... A lot of the cases, a lot of the theories, a lot of the experiments do focus on visual attention. And one of the things that you, one of the issues you raise in the in the beginning, is is a is a question, sort of a a meta question about attention, which is whether there's one type of attention. A, the attention itself picks out a you know one broad class. Or whether, in fact, one should be a skeptic about that kind of unity view mm-hmm. and hold that there are actually different sorts of attention. Uh, we we use one label. That's a mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all have different – they're actually very different when we look at them more closely, scientifically, or however you want to. And so there isn't a kind of an overarching – theory of attention. There's only going to be specific theories of attention. And uh, so could you just, where, where do you fall on that? Because the, the danger is always that one will be talking about attention and perhaps unintentionally really talking about one of the subtypes and what one says is not necessarily generalizable to other types. And in particular, with so much focus or attention um, put on the case of visual attention, uh, the question arises to what extent visual attention is its own kind of subtype. And then there are other types which are either linked to specific senses or not to link to senses at all. Right. Um, So on the first part, on the uh, unity issue, um, I think, so uh, a couple years ago when I was beginning to write the book, I thought, uh, since I'm part of a cognitive science department, and indeed a lot of my colleagues are senior figures in science who've worked on attention, I thought I would organize a study group. So we had about 10 faculty members, uh, 10, 15 postdocs and grad students myself. And what was striking about that is that um, I think the opinions there reflect uh, um, 
reflect the opinions in the field in general in science, which is that, yeah, you know what? Attention is sort of, there's a disunity. Um, and some people go as far as say, you know, we should just stop talking about attention. It's not really even something we can capture in definitions and everyone seems to mean something different by it. So we should just drop the notion uh, altogether. Um, and I really think that's a mistake. So my view is that there is a unified phenomenon of attention, although I grant that the term can be used in different ways. Um, but there is a core phenomenon, which I suppose you could start off by calling selective attention. And that's where these metaphors of highlighting and focusing and spotlighting in the visual case, um, uh, get a grip. Um, and so, uh, I would very much want to resist this kind of disunity move. And we can certainly talk more about that. It's easier to uh, unpack in explaining the selection for action view. But that's my sort of sort of meta you know, attitude towards, um, at least in empirical science, this kind of skepticism um, uh, to attention as a kind of unified phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that said, uh, uh, you know, we've been working on attention for a long time, <laughs> um, you know, 120 years, uh, um, uh, since the 1950s, really an explosion of empirical research. And if you uh, go to PubMed, which is the database uh, uh, for um, uh, uh, journals on, say, neuroscience and uh, psychology, among other things, um, and you search for attention, you're going to get, I don't know, 20,000, 50,000, I don't know, tens of thousands of articles at least. Uh, so there's a lot of work out there. And you're right. A lot of it is uh, focused on vision. And um, I guess in terms of generalizability, um, I think that's an open question. And it depends on what level you pitch it at. So if the issue concerns, for example, circuitry mechanisms at that sort of in that more lower level sense, it might turn out that there might be different mechanisms between, say, visual attention and auditory attention. Um, perhaps later we might talk about some of the computational models. Um, if you think of those models as mechanisms, and there's certainly going to be mathematical models that are more abstract, then it, it could be argued that at that level of description, there is a, there are, on the table right now, there's a unified model uh, in terms of a mechanism for attention. Um, what's called the divisive normalization model. Um, so uh, I think it depends on what you take from the visual domain. Um, my sense of it is that a lot of it probably will carry over uh, to other sensory modalities. Um, you did mention non-sensory attention. That's right, a really right. interesting case. And there, I'm not sure the empirical work is as clear um, in part because maybe this idea of non-sensory attention might strike some people as um, odd. So uh, Marvin Chun, who is a, a psychologist at Princeton, has written a review uh, where he talks about internal attention. And there I think he is thinking of something like non-sensory attention tied to memory and thought. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I think on uh, the empirical side, I think that's really work to be done in terms of thinking of it as a sort of attention. And I think the, it's an open question uh, in terms of the generalizability from the sensory case to the non-sensory case. So we'll have to see what happens there. Okay. Um, all right. So the, the book, you start off with a couple chapters on empirical evidence, right? Empirical work that's been done, some of the major stuff in, in psychology, 
uh, and then neuroscience. And as you say, it's a it is a short tour of a vast literature, and that's that's exactly right. Um, but you do pick out main theories, uh, main experimental paradigms, um, in order to kind of give uh, give readers a view of the sorts of work that has been done about which we need them to theorize. Then you present your own view, uh, the selection for action, which we will uh, definitely get into. Um, and then some of the competing views, right? The ones that um, associate attention with consciousness in some way. Right, and there's there's different ways to do that, and you you go you spend a couple of chapters um, discussing those ways. So let's start with some of the psycho landmark, I suppose, you know, because there is a vast literature here. Um, some of the landmark experimental uh, paradigms and uh, and perhaps theories. Uh, that form the background of your work and other contemporary work, uh, ongoing work in, in attention. Right. Um, so let me just lay out two experimental paradigms that um, your listeners might not, might not be familiar with, um, and they're quite famous, um, and I'll try and do it quickly. Uh, so the first is a visual search paradigm. Mm-hmm. And roughly what you do is you have someone sit in front of a computer and then you just present a bunch of objects. So if you can imagine, for example, my presenting you with a bunch of white vertical rectangles, and then I flash, um, say, seven of them, and in that uh, I say, um, sorry, I give you the uh, task of identifying um, a black vertical uh, rectangle, and then I you know, flash pictures. If I flash you know, seven white ones and a black one, um, the black one pops out, as they say. Just very easy to find it. It's the oddball. Mm-hmm. And so one of the early results, uh, Anne Treisman, a uh, famous psychologist at Princeton, uh, is uh, very famous for her work here. Um, uh, she found that, you know, it doesn't matter how many white vertical distractors I throw in. You're always, that, that black oddball is just always going to pop out. And But it gets harder if now I throw in, for example, um, horizontal black uh, rectangles, where you're still looking for the black vertical one. And uh, so one of the results, important results they found, was that where I now throw in distractors that share features with your target, mm-hmm. um, now the number of distractors matter. So whereas before, you know, the oddball always pops out if I have 10 white rectangles versus a you know, 17, 25. Now when I throw in black rectangles that are differently oriented, it's, you have to search, and it feels effortful. And you see this in terms of uh, a subject's reaction times. Um, so that, that's one sort of well-known result, um, and it distinguishes something that's uh, what's called pop-out or attentional capture in the oddball case, and another case where you have to really work hard in terms of attending to locate the um, target. And I think that really began to kind of divide these ideas of different kinds of attention in, um, in one sense. Um, 
the other paradigm that's probably worth bringing out is often used, especially, and we may come up back to this when we talk about unconscious attention, is what's uh, known as the Posner spatial cueing paradigm due to Michael Posner, who's also, also another well-known cognitive scientist. And the basic idea is that if I cue attention, it makes finding things a lot easier. Um, and if I misdirect your attention, uh, there's a cost. So if you think of attention as a, in, in the visual case as a spotlight, and I'm asking you to report on the presence of a target that I'm going to flash, if I direct your attention to the location where the target's going to appear, intuitively you've, you'd figure, well, yeah, you're going to be faster at locating the target because attention's going to already be there. The spotlight will have already sort of been you know, preset. Mm-hmm. If I misdirect you, and I can do this by flashing a light in a different location, or I can even point an arrow in that location. Um, there's a cost because the spotlight gets misdirected, the target appears on the opposite side of the screen, let's say, and now you've got to move the spotlight to locate the target and report that it's present. And so that was another kind of uh, very important result. Um, and these two paradigms kind of are often used to study attention. Um, and and th- those, um, those and many other paradigms really kind of inform, I think, um, our thinking about the psychology of attention. And I think f- as philosophers thinking about attention, I think it's this, it's, it's this kind of thing that you really want to understand and, and, and have a sense of what the results are and what their significance is. Okay. And uh, in the neurology or neurophysiology, I should say? Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. Um, uh, typically... Uh, so, for example, if you're working where you're, um, by recording directly from uh, a neuron, say in the visual system, um, these neurons will have what are called receptive fields. And just think of that as um, an area of space where the neuron sort of is responding to. So if you put a stimulus in that area of space, the neuron uh, will generate action potentials. It'll spike, fire. And so one uh, standard observation is that if you get um, the animal, studies are basically done in monkeys, um, if you get the monkey to attend to an object in the receptive field of a neuron, uh, what you often see is uh, what's called gain modulation. And you can think of that as simply amplifying the signal of the neuron. So you have two conditions, one where the animal is not paying attention to the object, the other where the animal is. And what you see is a difference in the firing rate, the number of action potentials generated per unit time. And it's as if attention is just like boosting the signal. Mm-hmm. And that's a very common um, um, uh, result. Um, a second one, which is kind of cool, is that um, you can get, you can, attention can essentially get those receptive fields. I mean, if you'd like, think of that as just a big circle, almost like a spotlight. I mean, I, I hesitate with that metaphor, but it's easier to kind of think of it that way. And you can show neural uh, sort of activity where, again, when the animal is attending to, say, the two, uh, you know, the two objects in the circle, when the animal tends to one, it's almost as if the neuron shrinks that circle, its receptive field around the object that it's attending to. And that's a really neat result because it seems to show a kind of echo at the neural level of this idea of filtering or spotlighting. And um, that's kind of a cool result. Um, And so these are all, uh, it's sort of paralleling some of the psychophysical results that you see in psychology. And so in the book, I try and lay this out, you know, so that people are aware of these empirical results at different levels of analysis. Cool. So um, 
your account, okay, yeah. what uh, you call it selection for action. Um, so tell us about that. You know, lay that out for us, um, you know, to begin with before we start going into further details. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, it's important, I think, to emphasize that this um, view was really nicely elaborated by uh, Alan Alport and Admar Neumann. And I think for the most part, uh, I think it was Alport who called it Selection for Action. And these were two papers in 1986. They're worth reading. They're very rich papers. Um, and so they came up with the idea. Although I think if you go back to William James's famous definition of attention, uh, it's already there in that definition. Um, James talk, talks about uh, you know attention as the mind's taking possession of something. And then he points out that when you do that, you withdraw from other things so you can deal more effectively with the thing that you're attending to. And, and for me, it's hard for me not to read that as an echo of the selection for action view. Um, so what I've contributed to this, I suppose, is arguing for a very strong version of it, which I know, in fact, Alport has told me <laughs> he doesn't himself endorse. But um, it's also worth noting that Alport wrote a very famous paper um, about I don't know, six, seven years later, where he was much more skeptical about any unified theory of attention. Uh-huh. And, and that, the title of that paper, is, a part of the title is, you know, have we been asking all the wrong questions? So uh, it's quite interesting to look at him. So the, the selection for action view is roughly this, that um, when you attend to something, let's call it X, uh, what attention is, is you're selecting that X to inform your performance of an action. So if I'm reaching for a mug... Um, which I'd like to do right now, but I'm not going to. Uh, uh, I, I look at it, I visually attend to it, and what I'm doing is visually selecting, say, the spatial location of the mug or some of its features to inform, say, my reaching for it. Um, so that's the kind of, uh, you know, if you'd like a paradigm case of what the selection for action uh, view is trying to capture. But it'll also work for thoughts, um, what we talked about earlier, like cognitive attention is what I'd like to call it. Uh, select a particular thought to reflect on, to commit to memory, to draw consequences from, to you know, form an internal picture, and so forth. So that would be a selection of, if you'd like, the thought content to inform, say, mental actions, um, mental responses. Does that give a kind of sense of... Yeah, it does. Um, so... I, I suppose the first uh, critical question, if you want to put it that way, is it, it kind of comes from what you mentioned in the book. Uh, there's this empirical, you know, a lot of the empirical data that you've gone through uh, involves using or having paradigms that involve attention in which the subjects are selecting for a task, right? And then you generalize that. Right. Um, and so one of, the, one of the worries, I suppose, that I had about going from selecting for a task in these various experimental paradigms to a general theory of attention as selecting for action um, was just the idea that, well, in the lab, psychological or neurophysiological, you have to operationalize your mental construct in some way. Yes. And so obviously, 
you are going to do that by means of some task. And so attention will be, in some sense, in, in this not behavioristic definition, but it'll be operationalized as selecting for a task. And so the question is whether that starting point uh, kind of somebody who thinks as you don't that consciousness is in some way connected necessarily or essentially or in, in some important way to attention will say something like, well, uh, you've operationalized it that way in an experimental paradigm. Uh, that's quite true. And you have to do that because now we're doing experimental psychology and you don't just rely on intuition. Mm-hmm. Um, but that isn't, that isn't giving us a, a definition about what it's like or yeah. anything of that sort. It is an operational way to get at the phenomenon, but it isn't the basis of a theory of the phenomenon. Yeah, sure. So the one thing I didn't mention, which is the one thing I think James got wrong, although there are ways of reading his claim here, is that he says something to the effect that consciousness is of the essence of attention. And, um, um, yeah, so... And as I said earlier, I think for people who are coming into this, um, you know, the phenomenological conception of attention, I think, is in many ways the most intuitive thing to grasp to start thinking about it. Um, So for me, it actually was an open question. That is to say, the beginnings with the operational definition, which I'll say something more about in a second, but the beginnings of that left open this idea uh, that attention might have some essential connection to consciousness. I mean, it might have turned out that way. And um, maybe we'll talk a little bit later about um, empirical evidence that attention can be dissociated from consciousness. Um, So I I guess, you know, intellectually in terms of my own history, um, it wasn't something that I immediately took to be true, Um, although I didn't have any, you know, uh, sort of um, prior views that it, was probably false. So it was kind of more of an open question. But on the operationalization of attention, um, I mean, I want to go back to uh, what we spoke about earlier when we talked about um, whether attention is unified. And I mentioned that, you know, a lot of my colleagues, and you can look at the literature uh, in science and science of attention, uh, where people say, well, you know, attention is too many things, it's not unified. And what I I think the important lesson in chapter one of the book that goes over the psychology of attention, where I talk about these paradigms like visual search uh, um, and uh, uh, the spatial cueing paradigm and other paradigms, um, what's common in all those approaches to experimentation um, is this implicit connection of uh, controlling attention um, by having the subject select for task. So the, the methodological point is something like this. If you're a psychologist studying attention, you want to have very tight control on what your subject is attending to. And the best way to do that, and you can do this at home with someone, right? I mean, you want them to attend to something. You, you can make that object relevant to their performing something. So maybe I'm, I think I'm going to have my students listen to this podcast. So, and I'll have them, um, I'll have them write down what your next question is. 
and I'll grade them on it to, to, to make sure they do it accurately. So I've set them a task. And the reason I'm doing that is because I just want to illustrate a point. I want to get them to attend to your next question auditorily. Okay. And so really, that I mean, that's sort of intuitive. This is how I'm going to control attention. I connect the thing that I want you to attend to to something that you have to do. And if you look at all the experimental paradigms, um, that's already implicitly assumed. So what I would say to my empirical colleagues is, first, you have in your thinking about attention this what I call an empirical sufficient condition, that if a subject in an experimental context to perform a task has to select information, features, whatnot, from an object, that is sufficient for the subject to attend to it. Right. And that I just want to point out, whatever else we say is already a common core that everyone agrees on implicitly in psychology. So I would point to the disunity folks that, you know, you already have something that kind of unifies your approach to attention. Now, the metaphysics of it, yeah, I agree with you that, you know, it, it it requires a lot more argumentation to then go from there to say that, oh, attention is something like selection for action. And the moves just really quickly are that the kinds of tasks that we ask subjects to perform, like in visual search, like in queuing, which is really just looking, um, tracking objects, committing things to memory, all these various paradigms that we do all the time in normal life. So there is a move between saying, oh, attention is selection for task, or that's sufficient for attention, to attention is selection for action in this broader sense. But to me, it's not a very big leap, given the kinds of things that we're really asking subjects to do in the laboratory. Um, and if you grant me that much, that's half your definition. Right. And I think that's a big step. Um, so... Uh, I guess the the other half, maybe, or, um, uh, I mean, one of your main arguments for detaching, distinguishing attention from, from consciousness is this idea that you can have uh, unconscious or non-conscious, I forget which you prefer, uh, attention. Yeah. Uh, so maybe you can – that might help clarify things, going through that, that argument. Sure. Yeah. Um, right. So it's the necessary condition that gets me into hot water. That's, I mean, people might be willing to grant me the sufficient condition. The necessary one is, uh, is harder to argue for. And it's, uh, um, so uh, those who think that attention has some essential connection to consciousness – uh, might say, well, for your sufficient condition allows for cases in which you select, if you'd like, something unconsciously, such that attention will come out disconnected from consciousness. So, and so, and so uh, from the, if you'd like, the phenomenological perspective, that's just going to be, you know, a reductio of the position. Right. And uh, so this is, I guess, where a couple points then. Um, it's not clear to me – so there are two issues in terms of uh, attention and consciousness. One, I can allow and I do allow that in many of our sort of basic cases of attention, attention does seem to be connected to consciousness. So, you know, um, uh, uh, you can shift attention visually. You can shift – you're at a loud um, – Party with lots of people talking and you can sort of auditorily scan the room to try and find a more interesting conversation, for example. Um, so all those are really intimately bound up with consciousness, but it's a stronger claim to say, and I guess I would want to query my opponents, 
why we get to move to the essential claim, right? That is to say, attention has some essential connection to consciousness. Um, so I'd like to turn the tables a little bit there. But for me, it's an open question. So, um, and so the result, one result um, due to Bob Kentridge uh, at Durham, who's a psychologist there. So he's worked with uh, a blindsight patient, GY. And, um, and blindsiders, as you know, uh, uh, have damage to primary visual cortex, and so they have a blind hemifield. So if the damage is the right side of visual, uh, primary visual areas, um, they're sort of blind in some sense to the left side. And so what he's done is to use uh, this positive spatial cueing paradigm, uh, which I described earlier. And he shows using that, that uh, it looks like GY can visually attend to objects in the blind field. That is to say, you see the standard um, um, costs and benefits uh, in terms of reaction time uh, in GY as you do with a normal patient using the same, a normal subject using the same paradigm. And so that's, uh, using that paradigm, that's sort of evidence that GY can attend to uh, objects that he's not visually conscious of. But uh, Kentridge has done this using uh, things like flash suppression in normal subjects where you can use certain techniques to basically uh, make visual objects invisible and show, uh, again, that there are visual attentional effects. And so um, I'm convinced that there's really good evidence uh, if you um, deploy those paradigms as evidence for visual attention that we can have visual attention to objects without con- visual consciousness of them. Well, let me let me just jump in there a second because um, it, I suppose when I thought about the passages where you talked about Kentridge's work with the with the blindside patient, uh, there was you might you might respond instead that well I guess these tests aren't of spatial attention, but in some sense of inform- spatial information processing or something, and they show that we can process this information and have the reaction time differences even without attention, yes. right? Just as we do it with even without the ability to report or sure. you know, whatever measure you do for blindsight, right? Um, so... Uh, I mean, what what makes it, it seems like the argument depends on the fact that the that experimental paradigm has been taken to be a paradigm of a test of spatial attention, uh, and and maybe that label is just wrong. Sure. So. Um... So certainly, uh, I think, and this may not be the way, worry, but um, you know, someone who thinks that attention is going to be essentially tied to consciousness will take that as evidence uh, to the extent that they agree that GY uh, is not con- visually conscious of objects in his blind hemifield. Um, they, from their theoretical perspective, they'll see that as evidence that look what 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 it's testing for, at least in the case of GY, but maybe broadly is something like as you said you know, um, some lower-level kind of information processing that we can sort of draw on to perform a certain kind of task. And there, then, I think the um, the argument then moves up to a different level. It's about then more the uh, kind of metaphysical argument about what our assumptions are and um, why they're valid in terms of thinking about attention in a certain way 
as a starting point. Um, and so I, I grant that that's not going to be decisive to someone who already thinks that attention has to be essentially connected to consciousness. Um, they're going to read those results in a different way. So I think, I think the benefit of that argument is that if you're approaching the issue with a more neutral capacity, because I mean, you know, we're all going to have, you know, implicit or explicit biases in terms of our thinking about certain aspects of the mind. So I grant, and as I said, I expect that most people coming to this uh, initially are going to have the phenomenal conception in mind. So, uh, so I, I grant the point that it's not going to be decisive. Um, I think from a more neutral perspective, given that, uh, as you mentioned, um, most scientists, I think, would be inclined to take those tests to be uh, uh, indicators of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, they would go the route where they would disconnect uh, attention from consciousness. But, you know, again, I just want to press the point that there are two claims here that need to be distinguished uh, if you're on the phenomenal side. One is that the point that I grant, that normal cases of attention look to be tied to consciousness. But it's a much stronger claim that is usually not argued for, that there's some necessary connection between the two. Um, Well, well, I want to get to some of the later chapters, but just to uh, press a little bit more on on this. So by by separating them the way you do, um, and... You know, it's it's that that makes the view very controversial in a way. Um, yeah. uh, it seems to be a consequence that if I had a machine, a robot, something that uh, has some apparatus for perceiving things, maybe maybe you don't want to use the word perceiving, but it's got a yeah. you know camera for for moving about, right. and it is selecting you know, some objects, you know, rocks or eggs or something for action. Yes. Right. Um, so on your view, or at least it seems that that robot, um, would have attention. Right. Um, great. Uh, so background point, um, um, well, uh, so actually the, the view restricts the relevant sort of selection to psychological states. So I think um, from the perspective of the theory, if the robot has a mind uh, and thus literally has perceptual states, then it does have attention, say visual attention. If we have reason to think that the robot is a kind of mere machine... So maybe uh, it's like an object sorter in a factory or something like that. Um, while it does select for processing, uh, it doesn't attend because the selective states uh, themselves aren't mental states. And so um, I, I think of attention as a psychological capacity. And so there's a line to be drawn between selective processing that is not psychological versus those that are um, um, that's how I would uh, draw the line. So no, I'm not committed to attention being um, ubiquitous in that sense. Um, and and the thing I wanted to mention earlier was that, I mean, if you read the literature on attention in psychology, um, you'll often t- find talk about a selective attention. And I point out in the book that, you know, that's not going to be enough to sort of capture processes precisely for the kinds of cases that you just raised, right? There's a lot of selection in the world. 
And I think most people want to avoid calling all of that selection, uh, all that kind of selection attentional or attentional selection. Um, and so how you sort of identify the kind of selection that counts as attentional is important. So one way is to say what a selection is for. Uh, and another way is to say, well, what are the kinds of states, selective states that count as attentional? Okay, okay. good. That was that, that helped a lot. Um, okay, so those benighted people who think that attention is, is connected to consciousness. Um, uh, as you mentioned, William James, yes. uh, he gets a lot, th- a lot of things right on your view, but one of the things that he gets terribly wrong. Um, is this idea that um, attention uh, uh, is essentially connected to consciousness? Um, yeah. And so let's you know let's kind of go through that. You know your response to James. Um, well, you do raise the issue of of unconscious uh, attention um, uh, as being one of the reasons that it is not just a distinct form of attention of consciousness. Sorry, yeah. as, as James says. Uh, but you also say that there's no good account of some distinctive essential phenomenology of right. attention. Um, so could you uh, go through that part a little bit? Yeah, so um, that's probably the most difficult part of the book. Uh, I don't know what it was like as a reader. I want to ask you here. But uh, as a, as, uh, in terms of writing it, I found that the most difficult part of the book to write. And um, I... I uh, well, I won't say negative things about my approach to the issue here, but um, so if we start, if we start with the sort of the intuitive way in that I mentioned earlier, the idea that you know there is a phenomenology of attention, such that we're sort of all aware of it, such that um, talk about spotlighting, which is rampant even in the psychology of attention, talk of highlighting, really does get a grip. And um, so I want to acknowledge that. Um, and, uh, you know, we have on the basis of introspection some sense of something that's different when we attend. Now, um, understanding in more detail beyond the kind of intuitive sense that we have there, uh, I think is much more difficult. And so one way you might go about it is to say, all right, well, look, um, those metaphors make me think that attention is a kind of mode of consciousness, if you'd like, uh, to use a very familiar phrase, um, that there's something that it's like to attend. And maybe to use another kind of term, you might say, well, there's a distinctive attentional phenomenology or phenomenal character. Um, so that's an attempt to kind of put in more, I don't know, I guess a kind of technical vocabulary, uh, what we're trying to explain when we talk about you know, attention is essentially conscious. So let's say that you take that as the kind of, uh, as the project. Then there are many different ways of going about it. One way would be to take uh, your favorite theory of phenomenal consciousness, phenomenal character, uh, what it's like, and try and unpack something that's distinctively attentional. And so one theory, as you know, is, um, is representationalism. So, you know, that view roughly is that uh, phenomenal character uh, minimally supervenes on uh, representational content. So the phenomenal character vision will supervene on visual representational content. Um, And so if you think that there's an attentional phenomenal character, you might try and unpack that in terms of representational content. And I think the the short story is that in, in that chapter of the book, in, in a paper that I've written called uh, What is Conscious Attention? 
um, I try and go through different proposals about what um, that phenolic character might be in representational terms. So Marissa Carrasco, at, uh, who's a psychologist at NYU, has uh, done some really nice experiments that suggest that, for example, when you attend to uh, a contrast gradient, so it looks like a, you know, um, a gradient of black and white lines, roughly. Um, if you look at that and you attend to that, um, she has these really nice uh, subtle experiments where it looks like what attention is doing, if you'd like, is making things look relatively more contrasty. And so you might say, all right, well, um, in visual attention, in respect of contrast, attention might seem to be boosting, you know, the contrast of an object that is being attended to. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might say, all right, well, uh, maybe that's the phenomenology of visual attention. Wherever I point the visual attentional spotlight, contrast gets boosted. Um, and then you can have lots of proposals like that. And so the short story is that um, for each of those cases, the standard thing that you do in, uh, uh, to attack representationalism is to show that you get the phenomenology without the, uh, the representational content. Um, and that's really what I do in that chapter. I go through all these different proposals um, where uh, you can potentially highlight something in that intuitive sense, but there's no change to the relevant sort in content. So, for example, um, as the sun goes down in the evening, uh, given the nature of lighting, things become less contrasted. So by the time dusk hits, it's really hard to kind of tell contrast. And when it's dark, you know, you can't tell at all. But you can, you can clearly keep lock and highlight something, even as contrast boosts during the time that you're attending to it. So this is a way of trying to separate the uh, what you might think of as the attentional phenomenology. It's still there, the spotlighting, the highlighting, despite this decrease in apparent contrast. And, and so I go through a you know, set of those in the book, but, but much more detail in that paper. Um, and that, that, those kinds of moves uh, sort of suggest to me that it's very hard to unpack in clear terms this intuitive idea that attention is highlighting or spotlighting in the visual case. Okay. Um, so in... in in chapters five and six, which are sort of the main, I guess, argumentative, the rest of the argumentative chapters, because at the end you think about issues in demonstrative thought yeah. and uh, epistemology, actually. Um, but so in those chapters, you discuss two versions of what you call uh, gatekeeper views. Mm-hmm. Um Basically, instead of your view, which is selection for action, yes, uh, this is, in a sense, selection for consciousness. Right. And one of the, those views, the first, is tied to uh, various experimental paradigms involving inattentional blindness, right? So right. this is Daniel Simons with the the gorilla, um, is a is a you know famous case of that. Um, And then the other one is uh, gatekeeping for uh, cognitive access. Yes. Um, And there seems to be more uh, discussion, um, more of a relationship there to, uh, well, they both involve working memory. But in in the latter case, it seems to play a much more more critical role. So maybe you could uh, first tell us about the inattentional blindness um, case and mm-hmm. uh, and your response to the the that 
version of the gatekeeping view. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I feel like my main competitor in terms of accounts of selection, uh, attention is selection. Uh, my main competitor is the selection for consciousness view. Um, a lot of psychologists and neuroscientists don't want to talk about consciousness. Um, and so they might say, well, it's selection for perception, for example. But I, I, I take those to be essentially equivalent for our purposes. And um, so uh, a well-known case is, as you mentioned, the inattentional blindness cases. And, you know, that, that, that's quite striking, Um I mean, I never want to spoil it for someone, but we're going to have to hear, right? So you mentioned the gorilla, uh, right? So um, you're, you're, you're given a task, and the task is to look at these white uh, people in white shirts and black shirts. The two groups are passing basketball between uh, members of that group, and you have to pick one group and count the number of passes. And in the midst of doing this task, which is supposed to be attentionally demanding, um, a gorilla comes out, or sometimes it's a bear, and does some funny things like dance, moonwalk, and many people don't notice the bear. Um, and this is meant to illustrate this idea that if you don't attend to an object, you're not conscious of it, visually conscious of it. And so that is to say, attention is a gatekeeper in the sense that it's a necessary condition that, that I attend to an object in order to be conscious of it. And... Uh, now, while these uh, these kinds of experiments are really striking, I think they're methodologically mistaken. And I think with respect to the issue about attention as a gatekeeper, they actually can't speak to it. And the reason why is that the strategy in the experiment is to is – the condition that's being tested is that attention is a necessary condition for being conscious of an object. And so to do that, of course, you want to show that you have a case where you're not attending to the object, mm-hmm. but you're conscious of it. And, um, sorry, sorry. Yeah. So you're attending to the object, but you're not conscious of it. Right. So, um, and methodologically, what you want to do is to ensure that the subject is not attending to the gorilla. And in that experiment, you give the subjects a reasonably demanding task, which is that they have to count the number of basketball passes in two groups. So the strategy is, is to tie up all attention to the ball so that you can argue plausibly there's no attention to the gorilla. Now, from my perspective in terms of selection for action, if you've done that, what you've also done is taken the means by which the subject has to report on the gorilla. That is to say, if attention is really sucked up entirely in the counting of the basketballs, which is the strategy here, there's no more attention to, um, to report the gorilla. And that means that you're you can predict if the experiment works well that subjects actually won't report the gorilla, which is the surprising finding. So the point is that the methodology is already, in a sense, guaranteeing the result. If the experiment works as intended, uh, the prediction is, in fact, that you won't uh, report the gorilla. And that means that that would be true whether or not you were conscious of the gorilla or not. Um, so I think a lot of these experiments that are meant to test gatekeeping are methodologically they methodologically undercut themselves. I mean, what I do think those uh, those experiments show is what captures attention, and I do think and I don't think they're you know useless. I think they tell us precisely about under certain conditions what are the kind of stimuli uh, that are able to break through and capture attention. Um, and, and so I think that's the important part of the results, but I don't think they speak to gatekeeping. Okay, so um, uh, 
Well, then let's let's go to well. One of the things that that occurs to me is, in a sense, your response is, uh, you know, there's there seems to be a lot that hangs on reportability. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, and you you don't discuss that directly. I mean, it's it's obviously a very important part of the consciousness literature. Um, yeah, I mean, how can report, reportability is a very common, uh, uh, operational way to get at consciousness. Right. Uh, and it seems like the lack of reportability is often taken to be a lack of consciousness. That's right. Uh, well, what do you what do you think about that? I mean, it seems to cut both ways. I mean, you're you know, on the one hand, the blindsider can't you know doesn't report on what's apparently in their visual field. Yeah. They're not conscious. That's what makes them blindsiders. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that that as you as you conceded before, that's not a that's not a you know complete win for you in terms of you know the blindsider and the spatial. The yeah. spatial attention paradigm. But then, of course, now the tables are turned and you, you can say the, exactly the same thing about people who want to use inattentional blindness mm-hmm. to argue uh, for an essential link, uh, you know, that that, con- that attention is selection for consciousness. Yeah. So could you say something? This is a little bit out of the way of the book itself, although it obviously comes up. Um, sure. What do you think about reportability as a criterion or operational uh, way to get at consciousness or attention? Yeah. Oh, that's. Good... <laughs> I know. Uh, no, no, it's all right. Uh, I mean, so uh, you know, I work at the center, and it's um, it's interesting because I mentioned before that lots of scientists who are actually, in fact, studying consciousness are not happy to talk about it in, in those terms, but, um, to engage with them, I think, uh, so as a kind of strategic thing to interest them in philosophical issues, um, you know, a starting point, especially about consciousness is that this is our way in, right. That is reportability or reports. And, um, now I agree that, uh, that people do make the inference from, uh, failure report, say the gorilla, failure of reporting the gorilla to uh, lack of, say, visual consciousness of the gorilla. Um, you know, I think probably the safe thing to say is that it gives you evidence that the subject is not visually conscious, um, but it's not really a necessary condition, of course. Um, but uh, the science of it is, I don't know, it's hard to see how it's going to rely on any other sort of measures. Um, and in part for the issues that are raised in terms of access. Um, and that block is really, as people know, has uh, is really uh, been central here in terms of our thinking about this. Right. Um, you know, I'm co-teaching a course with a psychologist, uh, my colleague Mike Tarr, who's a vision uh, neuroscientist, a cognitive neuroscientist who works on object perception and face perception. You know, we were talking yesterday in our class about um, looking at imaging results as a way of getting access to consciousness. So, so it's not really explicit verbal report, um, um, but looking at sort of differences in activity between conscious cases and unconscious cases. But as you know, it's really it's it's an open question 
whether those particular measures are going to give us access to it. So I, I think my view about it is that I think empirically it really is our way of accessing it. But I think the kinds of claims that we can make on the basis of it are really they're empirical claims, right? There's no, there's no quick um, move between lack of reports to lack of consciousness, and that's the that's the difficult part. Um, so I'm totally trying to dodge your question. <laughs> well, you know, you're not the only one. <laughs> Um, so let me just, uh, you know, last question or next to last is uh, the the selection for consciousness or, or gatekeeping view, uh, which involves access. I mean, you just mentioned, you know, you just mentioned access. And of course, Ned Block makes that, you know, fundamental distinction now between phenomenal consciousness and, and access consciousness. Um, and there you talk a bit more in that chapter about uh, the relationship between um, attention and uh, cognitive processing, and in particular, working memory or short-term memory, of which working memory is a form or you know, various forms of short-term memory. So yeah. could, you, could you say something about the, uh, the issue there and, and your response to that? that yeah. Um, so I think the, the big challenge then is to try and show that there is attention without – sorry, consciousness without attention – I think we've shown that there's attention without consciousness. Those are the blindside studies, for example, done by Kentridge. Um, so uh, a very famous result that is used here are the, uh, is the Sperling paradigm, partial uh, report paradigm. And here, just really quickly, if I can do it, uh, you, you flash an array of letters, let's say 12 uh, letters in three rows, and you ask uh, subjects to report as many letters as they can, and let's say, you know, it's roughly four, I think. Um, uh, but then you do it in a slightly different condition where you flash the letters, and then you have a tone which corresponds to one of the rows, and then you ask subjects to report on the uh, letters in, uh, in the row that's sort of cued by the tone. And then if you do certain, you make certain assumptions, and then you compute uh, roughly how many letters uh, they must be actually have in uh, memory, uh, it's about twice what they can actually report under the first condition. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's a very well-known result. I think Sperling did this when he was a graduate student, in fact. Um, wow. Obviously one of the you know, most well-cited papers in, in this domain. And um, so the question is this. What he shows, I think, is that information, there's more information than you can report in the first condition that obviously that has to be there in the system somewhere, right, right. say in uh, working memory or visual sh- uh, short-term memory. I mean, there are many ways of dividing this. And, the, and part of the uh, challenge in the field is, you know, precisely how to sort of you know, locate uh, this information. So I, I think that's pretty well accepted. The controversial thing um, uh, and, and, and so it shows that verbal access um, in terms of reportability is outstripped by this information right. wherever it's located. Mm-hmm. So the controversy is to decide whether or not that information um, in the uh, partial report case is uh, phenomenally conscious. That is, is the subject phenomenally conscious of that and I don't know what to say there. I, I think it's still really an open question. Um, Ned Locke has tried uh, has argued that it is. There are many uh, people who have argue, uh, argued against um, him in that respect. And I, I'm still not sure exactly, you know, where I fall on that. Um, uh, yeah. 
Okay. So, yeah. That's a dodge too. Yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, well, we are uh, we are running out of time, and I'd like to ask at least uh, where you go from here. Where where are you doing more work in attention, or have you turned your attention to something else? Yeah, um, you know, I thought I would stop writing on attention after the book, and certainly for a couple months, I needed to not think about that or indeed anything else. Um, but in fact, I've started working on introspective attention. Uh-huh. Um, because I think, so I think introspection is, uh, um, you know, it's our, it's our, it's our gate into consciousness and, um, it turns out, um, and I try and hint at this in the book that I think that in fact you need introspection itself as a form of attention. It's, it's a provocative claim and I won't have time to kind of unpack that. So I'm trying to look at what introspective attention or introspection comes to, what the role of attention is in introspection. And I take a what uh, what's uh, you might call a transparency view. That is that there is no special form of introspective attention. It really just is in the perceptual case where you're introspecting your perceptual consciousness. Mm-hmm. It's just perceptual attention. And that was an idea that you can already see in Gilbert Harmon's sort of famous uh, discussion of transparency. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's paradoxically when we introspect our internal phenomenal uh, features in visual experience, we're just using visual attention. That's what introspection amounts to. So that's what I've been working on recently. But more broadly, I think I might write another book about agency and its uh, and the nature of agency. So that's a that's a big project that I'm starting to start on. So hopefully, I'll I'll leave attention behind and uh, move on to this uh, new topic. Great. Well, I look forward to uh, reading and possibly talking with you about that. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks so much again for having me. Okay, so uh, in the meantime, thank you again for taking the time to uh, to talk with us, and good luck with your with your new projects. Great. Thanks again. Okay. Bye bye. You've been listening to my interview with Wayne Wu, Associate Professor and Associate Director of the Center for the Neural Basis of Cognition at Carnegie Mellon University. We've been talking about his new book, Attention which is just out from Routledge. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.